So today we're talking about encounter, and we remember we talked the very first week about John 14, 23. We talked about if, if, if you love me, you'll obey my teaching, and my Father will love you, and we will come and make our home with you. And the whole idea is behind that. We talked about the idea of encountering God to the point where he comes and he makes his home with us. I don't know about you, but I want God all up in my business. I want him involved in everything. I want him to move in. But in the course of that, when that scripture got a hold of me, God, in a sense, asked me this question, are you sure? Because if I come in, if I move in, things are going to change. And so many times we say we want God involved in our life and we want him all in our business, but at the same time, do we really want him all in our business? Because sometimes we're not sure because if he comes in, if he moves in, if he makes his habitation here with us, then things have to change. And then last week we talked about encountering his people and the importance of us being his people, that their encounter with us should lead them towards a God encounter. So let me know that their encounter with us can be a wall between them and a God encounter for not doing things like we should. So today, as I was thinking about where we're going today, and I began to think about it, I thought about a, I ran across a story that just really captured it all in a, in a nutshell. I read about a family that went to visit a missionary that they knew over in Germany. And this family went to for the visit, and if you've ever been on a mission trip, many times you go, and you're doing work, and you're doing ministry, and you know, I've been on construction missions trips, I've been on ministry missions trips, and there's different, they take on different forms, but usually at some point, there's a day or so that you do a little bit of sightseeing, and a little bit of playing, and kind of, because you, you're maybe at a place that you've never been before, just like when we went to Cuba this, this last year, this group of us went, now we worked really hard, poured concrete, and I hadn't worked that hard in a long, long time. But we still took a day that we went and did a little bit of sightseeing and, and did some things, and it was rewarding. But, but this family had gone and done that, and so during their time that they had available just to look around and sightsee, they ran across something that they felt they just couldn't live without. They ran across a toaster. That may seem weird, but this is a toaster in Germany, and it looked different than the toasters they would find at the Walmart here and around our areas. And so they just, they loved it. They felt so lovely because it had this unique design to it, and the colors of it matched exactly their decor in their kitchen. They said, you know what? We have to have that toaster. So they bought the toaster, thinking that'll look great in our kitchen. They were excited. Kind of like a kid when you get a new toy, though. When they got back to where they were staying, they couldn't leave it in the box. So they opened the box, and they pull out the toaster, and they sit it up right there in their room. They said, you know what? Let's plug it in. Let's get a a couple pieces of bread. Let's make some toast. So they put a couple pieces of bread in there, and they, they... push the lever down, and they're waiting to smell the smell of toast. I mean, who knows when was the last time they were so excited about two pieces of bread popping up. The problem was they never smelt the smell, and they never saw the toast. They said, "This what we got is broke. It's, it's defective. And so they said, we don't, we're going to have to put it back in the box. We're going to take it back to the store. And so they did. They put it back in the box. They went to get ready to take it back to the store, but they looked everywhere and couldn't find the receipt anywhere. They went back to the store, and the store said, without the receipt, we will not exchange it or we will not refund it. And so they were stuck with this toaster that didn't work. 
So they decided, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go ahead and take it back home, and maybe, just maybe, we'll be able to get it fixed and still use it because it'll look so good in our kitchen. So they took it back home. Now, obviously, they probably noticed it, but obviously the plug from Germany wasn't going to work in their wall socket here. But they couldn't. They found out, they discovered they couldn't just cut off the, that and rewire it because in Germany, things run on 220. Here, they were run on 120, so that wasn't going to work. And so soon they realized that what they had was a really pretty toaster that didn't do anything. What good is a toaster that doesn't make toast? What good is something that won't fulfill its purpose? Because they couldn't use it. It'd be a goofy paperweight, right? You imagine if your desk of papers, you have a big toaster sitting on That's my paperweight. It looked funny as a doorstop. Wouldn't make a very good lawn ornament. So literally, they end up throwing the toaster away and going buying one at Walmart just like everybody else has. But the truth is, what about us? Because many times there are those that claim to follow Jesus, yet we don't fulfill the purpose for which we were made. See, everything in his kingdom, every one of us has a purpose. And we started living in a conscious effort to fulfill our purpose and to encounter his purpose for us. We would have so much more of a fulfilled life. Really, today, far too many people almost act like that God created this world and he created them, and he set them down in it, and that we're just supposed to somehow find something to do until he comes back to get us. I realize that we were told to occupy until he comes, but we use the wrong definition of occupy. It doesn't mean find something to keep you busy, find something to keep you entertained until he returns. There's a whole lot more to it than that. And so, we were placed here by God like Jesus was with a purpose. Each of us has a mission in life. And part of Jesus' prayer, if you remember last week, we talked about Jesus' prayer and what he prayed in the garden. We know that he prayed, Lord, if this, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. We know that he prayed, Lord, nevertheless, your will be done. We know that he prayed for his disciples, but we also read where he prayed for all those that would believe because of their message. In other words, he prayed for us. And I, I, we talked a lot about that prayer, but there's one verse in that prayer for us that I left out. And it fits, so fits this today. It's John 17, 18. It says, as Jesus talking, he says, as you talking to his father, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Matter of fact, I love the message translation of this particular verse. It says this, it literally says, in the same way that you gave me a mission in this world, I gave them a mission in the world. See, we have a mission. We have a purpose. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a toaster that don't do anything. See, we seldom in life fully realize how fulfilled we could be because many times we miss out on God's given purpose for our life. We find purpose 
when we find God's design and we live it out. So today I've given today's message entitled Encounter Fulfillment. Because if we were to take a, a, a poll today, there's not a person here that wouldn't say, I want to live a life that's fulfilled. But yet so many times when God speaks, we look the other way because that's not the answer we were looking for. But it is the answer that we were created for. So if I were to take all this and boil it down to one statement that you could carry with you, it's simply this. We look for fulfillment in being served. We find fulfillment in service. I'm going to say that again. We look for fulfillment in being served. We find fulfillment in service. See, there are many people that are out there that are living their lives, and they're living their lives purpose-free. Now, I know that it's a fad these days. We love to go buy things that are sugar-free or, or gluten-free or this free and that free, but we shouldn't want to live life purpose-free. And so this morning as I was thinking about that thought, I thought, you know what, it just hit me, and I've never seen this quite like this before, but this morning I want to expose three lies of Satan that rob us of fulfillment and it's the very fulfillment we desire deep down in our souls, but he loves to steal that from us. Lie number one, tipping the good deeds scale. And what I mean by that is that before we come to Christ, we're living our life, we're living a life without purpose. And the enemy somehow wants to convince us that there's some kind of a, a magic scale out there. And if we can do just a few more good deeds than we did bad deeds, if we can just get that needle just to point just a little bit to the good side, that we're okay. That heaven awaits. Because it's all based on what you do. Think about it. What happens? You're going through life and you're looking for purpose and, and maybe somewhere along the line you begin this and I hear this all the time from people that I talk to and they're looking for things and they, something begins to stir in them and they know that there has to be more. They start looking for purpose in life and they start thinking, well, maybe church is the answer but then when you approach them about it, you hear, oh, I, I know that I need to get things right. I know that I need to get back to church but I've got a few things I need to clean up first. Wait a minute. What you do isn't what this is all about. We cannot do enough cleaning of ourselves first. That is impossible. God has so much more. It's not based on what we do. It's based on who we approach and who we yield to. And so we see this, and, but this, this idea that a few more good deeds will get you to the point where you can begin to approach God is a lie from the enemy, and it's an artificial barrier that keeps you from approaching him. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that anyone can boast." Our good deeds will never open the door to salvation. But it never stops us from asking the question that we hear all the time. You see it all through scripture. What must I do? It's not what we must do. It's what he already did. 
And it's accepting that work. As a matter of fact, if you look at it in Acts 16, 31, we, we see this question asked, or 16, 29. It's a familiar scripture, but I want to read it, then I'm going to make a few comments about the story. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas, and then he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? People ask that question all the time, don't they? But here's a man that that witnessed something very, very incredible. See, Paul and Silas were out ministering, and and as they were ministering, there was this lady that began to follow them around, and this lady was a fortune teller, and she began to call things out, and it wasn't that what she was saying about them wasn't true. It was that it became a distraction for things that were going on. And so finally, after several days of this, Paul has enough, and he turns around, and he speaks directly to the spirit that was in her, casts it out, which is a great win for her, but yet it wasn't a win for those that to whom she belonged that were making a good bit of money off of her telling fortunes. So when their money train dried up, they became very angry with Paul and Silas. And so they created a stink, and Paul and Silas end up beaten and in jail, and so much in jail that they even made sure they put him in the most center part of the prison, down deep inside. They were chained and, and bound in stocks, and there they were. Now, can you imagine being in that kind of trouble over something that really was an incredibly good deed? There they were. So even sometimes when we do something good, we can find ourselves in a horrible situation. But yet we don't hear of them whining or complaining or or anything like that. Matter of fact, what we hear is that they begin to worship in the middle of the night. And the Bible tells us that this earthquake takes place. But this was a great precision earthquake. This earthquake just shook the prison. This earthquake just opened the doors. And I've never before seen an earthquake that caused shackles to fall off. But this one did. And it wasn't just Paul and Silas, but all of a sudden everybody in the prison was free. Now, can you imagine if you were the prison, the the person that ran the prison, and you were in charge, and they gave you this charge, if you lost everybody, chances are you was about to lose your life. And so he's in this panic because all these people have been set free, and he comes running out, and literally the Bible says that he had his sword and was about to kill himself when Paul and Silas stopped him and said, don't do it, we're all still here. And it was at that point he fell down and he said, what must I do to be saved? See, God many times brings us to that place. What must I do? And here's the answer in Acts 16, 31. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household will be saved. Imagine that. What must I do to be saved. We ask that question. <clears throat> and sometimes we struggle with the idea that believing is all there is to it. We still have this idea, what must I do? But the truth is, we just have to believe. Now, it's not just an intellectual believing that we're talking about, because if that's all it took, even demons would be saved because they believe that he exists. 
But really, if you, what I, what I like to say, say is this. There's really, it really is as simple as ABC. Admit you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And confess him as your Lord and Savior. That's not an intellectual exercise. That's a spiritual down in your heart exercise. That's it. Once that takes place, then this gift is unlocked. There's nothing you can do to earn it. You don't have to clean up to approach. He, that's the great thing. He does the cleaning up process. If you will submit to the process, he will bring you along and he'll do incredible things in your life because he is our Lord. He is our Savior. He's the one that does the work. Let me frame it to you this way. I am not a golfer. I don't claim to be a golfer. I don't even know that I desire to be a golfer, but I know a lot of people that they're really into that. But I ran across something I thought was kind of neat. One of the most famous, most highly sold books on sports in the world is a book called Little Red Book of Golf. And it was written by a guy by the name of Henry Pinnock. And Basically, what it came from is in the 1920s, Henry got this red spiral notebook, and as he would go around, and he was very into golf, and he'd play golf, and he'd watch other people, he would just jot, jot down little thoughts and little things that he saw, you know, where they did this, and that caused the ball to do this, and he just began to diagram all this stuff, and so over the years, he filled up this whole spiral notebook full of these thoughts and these ideas, and remember, he started doing this in the 1920s. It wasn't until 1991 that he finally decided, you know what? Maybe I ought to show that to somebody. So he, he, he calls and he finds a guy that's a writer and, and brings him in and sits him down and, and says, you know what? Here's this, here's this book that I've put together. I just want you to look at it and see if maybe there's something that can be done with it. And so this writer looks at it and, and flips through it and reads parts. And he says, you know what? I think you've got something here. And so he goes and he approaches Simon and Schuster about the idea of publishing it. So a couple of days go by and he contacts the man who's now pretty old. He says, hey, I just want you to know that Simon and Schuster has agreed to publish this book for an advancement of $90,000. And the man stops, and his countenance changes downward. And he looks at the, the writer, and he says, but I've got all of these bills and all these things and medical things. He goes, there's no way I can come up with $90,000. And the writer says, you don't understand. They want to give you $90,000 for the right to publish this book. But isn't that somehow we, how we approach God's grace and what he's done for us? We think that there's something we got to do to earn it. We think there's something that's going to cost us. And yet it's already been provided for by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's not what we can do. It's what he can do. It's not what must I do to be saved. It's what he's done for us. It really is as simple as ABC. Which leads me to lie number two. Now, now, lie number two, now that you're saved, no deeds are required. Isn't it interesting how the enemy flips that? Before you give your life to Christ, it's like, oh, you got to do all this stuff to earn it. After you give your life to Christ, just sit down, enjoy, 
Don't do anything. Just coast. No deeds required. See, he shifts our thinking. See, because if he can't, if he's lost us, then the next best thing is get us to not do anything. Now, my kids are little we used to watch VeggieTales. Those the song, The Pirates That Don't Do Anything. Some of you remember that song. Some of you are like, what in the world is he talking about? But the point is, he wants Christians that don't do anything. Okay, before it was all about works. Now that you don't have to do nothing. It's not based on work, so don't work. Just sit there. But let's look at Ephesians 2.10, the very next verse here. It says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. See, the truth is we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. There's a difference. We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. There are things that we're supposed to do. There's things we're supposed to be a part of. Matter of fact, James 2.26 says this, As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. Or depending on your translation, faith without works is dead. There's a man in Scotland that used to have a business that he would... Uh, row people across one of the locks in Scotland. That was his, his deal, that he would get them over to the other side. He ran this little ferry service, but it was a smaller boat, and he, he rowed it. And so one day a customer gets in and sits down on the boat, and he begins the process of rowing him across the lock, and the, and the man notices there was something engraved on each oar. And he looks and leans over, and he realizes that one of the oars had faith engraved on it, and the other oar had works engraved on it that finally kind of got the best of him he's like so what does that mean well the man that ran the little ferry business said oh i'll show you so he said watch this and so he drops the the works oar and grabs a hold of the faith oar and just begins to go to town on it all of a sudden the boat just starts spinning in circles and doesn't go anywhere then he says, now watch this. And he dropped the faith oar and picked up the works oar and he began to go to town on it. And it went in circles. Just the only difference was it was going the opposite way. And he said, now watch happens when I put both of them in. And he grabs both of them, begins to really lean into it. Next thing you know, they're just making a beeline right straight across the, the lock there. And they're on the other side in no time at all. See, but how many times do we as Christians want to lean too much on one or the other. That faith and works, working tandem with one another, accomplish so, so much. I don't know about you, I don't want, I've spent enough time in my life going around in circles. I want to get to a destination. And isn't that what purpose is? Isn't that what fulfillment is? It's a destination that we want to get to. And it takes faith and works to get there. <clears throat> See, we look for fulfillment in being served, but we find fulfillment in service. You know what this, this, we dismiss, the enemy wants us to dismiss this idea of works, but I really am afraid of when we do that, that we've created something in our culture 
that I call Christian consumers. And that's where people have this idea that the church is just like some other product or service that they consume. And so what that does is that creates church shoppers. And they have their little checklist. And so they'll go. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to call names, but there's a guy, he's not here, but he and his family came through, and he literally told me that we were like the 13th church that they had visited. And when they, when I reached out after I didn't see him a couple of weeks, because they came for several weeks, he literally told me, he said, he said, yeah, my wife and I, we really liked it, and we would have stayed, but our daughter, our daughter didn't like it, so I guess I'll, we'll continue our search. But you see what happens is we can create, and the idea is we're looking many times to be served. And I understand that. If I were going, there'd be certain things I'd be looking for. But you know what? The better question to ask instead of where can I be served is, Lord, where do you want me to plug in where I can serve, where the gifts I bring to the table can make a difference? See, it's so much more fulfilling. It's, you know... Since we've gone into full-time ministry, I can say without a doubt, every single place we've been, I knew without a doubt that was where God called us to be. It never was. We never left one place to search after a bigger paycheck. We never left one place to serve after some, some kind of better um, benefits package. It was always, God, where do you want us to serve? And there's a strength. There's something that comes with that idea that you know where you're supposed to be. Even when things aren't going exactly the way you want them to, if you know you're supposed to be somewhere, then you can hold on a little bit tighter. It's like, did God tell us to come here? Yes. Did he tell us to leave? No. Okay, it's not going like we want, but we're going, we're here. And you keep pressing on. And we, we've lost that. That's what it means when, when the, that's what the Lord meant by to occupy to get in and to take some territory and hold on because if you're doing something for God, there's going to be opposition. You're going to face some things. Lord, where do you want me to serve? Think about it. When when you see people that are serving, look in Scripture. When it was time to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt, God raised up a servant and his name was Moses. When it was time to enter the promised land after Moses was done, he raised up Joshua. When it was time to take down this giant called Goliath, he sent a little, he little sent a young man by the name of David to take care of it. When it came time to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, he sent a guy named Nehemiah to step in and to be a part of that. And when it came time to share the gospel to the Roman world, he sent a guy named Paul to take care of that. See, God has a way of picking individuals for certain things. And what does his kingdom and the church need? Think about this, process this. What does his kingdom and the church need that you are just God's servant to do? Isn't that more the question we should be asking? What is my place? What is my role? Which leads me to line number three. God couldn't possibly mean you. 
Because at first it's like, oh, don't worry about that. You have to do some things first before you can become a part of his kingdom. Then it's like, no, no, don't do anything. And if we get past that and we start to do something, we kind of feel a stirring or a calling. The enemy, the third lie is he couldn't possibly be you. You're not good enough. You can't do it. Let's look at that. Let's look at that little list that I read earlier. Joshua, Joshua was just a guy that held up Moses' arm. David was just a shepherd boy. Nehemiah was this expendable cupbearer. You don't put top quality people in the cupbearer's role because their job is to make sure the wine is good and not poison before it's given to the king. So if ever anybody had this idea that when God began to speak about rebuilding the city, they could have said, well, who, me? I'm nothing. Saul, that became Paul, was a religious bigot. I mean, we all have stuff. But let's look at Ephesians 2.10 again. I want us to look at the first part here where it says, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We were created for service because we are God's workmanship. We're created for service because God created in Christ Jesus. Through him, we were created to do good works. Work created literally means that we are designed with certain capabilities and abilities or certain giftings. There's certain things that he put down in us many times that we don't even know that are there. There are things he calls us to do, and we're like, God, I know you're perfect, but you blew this one. Right? But he sees things that we don't see. He has things down inside of us that he can bring out and develop in us. As a matter of fact, many times I really believe, and I want to get this, I want to communicate this so clearly, because sometimes we look at positions and we think, well, we, there's this role here. We need to put in the most qualified person to fill that role. God doesn't always see it that way. God says, you know what? I'm going to use this person here because it's going to bring out gifts in them that they don't even know they have, that nobody else sees, and I'm going to put them there, and they're going to learn so much, and they're going to grow from that, and they become, and, and people may look and say, that's not God's chosen person for that role. But yes, it is. Matter of fact, can I say this? I'm going to. I got the microphone. But when I see somebody that wants a position and they say, I am God's gift to that position, I'm like, give me the person that has some humility that says, I'm feeling this stirring in my spirit. But I feel so overwhelmed that he would even call me. That's the person that I want to put in that role. Because I'm telling you, I live my life in this weird place, and I've I've found a balance there. But it's interesting because on one hand, I know that I know that I know that I am called. There is no doubt that I'm called. There's no doubt that that I'm where I'm supposed to be. That is settled business. 
But at the same time, I'm like, God, I can't do this. But you know what? I know he can. I know that I can do all things through Christ that gives me strength. I know that without him, I can do nothing. And there's a balance between that idea of knowing who he is and being sure of his call and realizing our frailties and realize that, Lord, where I fall short, you're going to have to make up the difference. Lord, where I fall short, you're going to have to send somebody to help me. But there's a power in that. Let's, let's look a little further here. See, you're unique for a reason, a divine reason. God, I know that Scripture says that he formed us together, he knit us together in a mother's womb, but the modern version of that would be God programmed your DNA a long time ago. He knows what's in there. And he put it together like he wants it. You're not a mistake. You're not a failure. And if you want fulfillment, find his purpose. Judges 6.12. I love this passage. This, this passage just makes me laugh. When the, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. I love this story because this fits this because here's a guy, here's Gideon. The Midianites have been harassing the Israelites for seven years. They plant crops. They they try to to try to raise their animals. They do all these things, and the Midianites just come in and pillage the land and and lay waste to it, and and they're not letting the Israelites grow or develop anything. Many of the Israelites at this point are hiding in caves and they're doing whatever they can to try to make some kind of meager existence. And so Gideon is literally in stealth mode. He snuck into this area. He's gotten together a little bit of grain. He's just wanting to quietly get this grain, you know, um, separated so that he can take some of it back and have food for his family. And right in the midst of him, he's just wanting to hide. He's wanting, don't want anybody to know that he's there. He's in stealth mode. He's wanting to get this done and slip back. And all of a sudden, the angel appears and says to him, Greetings, mighty warrior. I mean, if that's not the definition of irony, I don't know what is. But there he is. And God does that. And I love his response in Judges 6, 15. But Lord, Gideon asked, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I'm the least in my family. But any times in that, many times in that a response when God begins to stir something in our heart. But Lord, I'm just this. In Moses' case, I stutter, or if we can go through person after person in Scripture. And we do the same thing in our lives. But Lord, what did God do? God used Gideon to put an end to the Midianites' oppression. Think about that. I also, I mean, I don't have too much time to get in the story because I need to wrap this up. But just the idea that he would get together these people and God say, oh, you got too many men. And this is after this guy put him through how many, Lord, are you sure, tests? 
Lord, if it's really you, I'm going to put the fleece here and you make the fleece wet and the ground dry. Okay, God, that was pretty cool. But just, Lord, if it's really, really, really you, this time make the ground wet and the fleece dry. I mean, here's a guy that struggled with the idea. And even when he finally committed to do it and he was supposed to tear down the altar to Baal, guess what he did? He went in the middle of the night. I'll just slip in and I'll do this and I'll, you know. He just did not want to be in the forefront. But yet God used him to change a nation and to set them free. He really was God's mighty warrior. And when God comes and speaks to us, how many times we say, but Lord, I'm just this. And But the words that he speaks to you are true. He, too many times he calls us a mighty warrior and we say, but I'm just the least. And we shortchange the purpose he wants to have in our life. Because we look for fulfillment in being served. We find fulfillment in service. This morning, I guess technically it's this afternoon now. Probably every person here, you're looking for fulfillment in your life. Some of us have found that place. And it's not without its difficulties, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. Because you know what? I have a reason to get up in the morning. I mean, trust me, it takes something fulfilling to inspire me to get up early enough to be here at 645 this morning. Right? But yet there's many times that I wake up before my alarm goes off because I'm thinking of all the things that can be accomplished in that day because I'm living a life of fulfillment. And so many people miss out on that. I'm not saying I've got it all together. I don't. But I'm saying that there's a purpose and there are things that he is speaking over you, that the enemy has convinced you that you're not good enough. And that's a lie. That's a lie. If he's spoken it, then he will help you make up the ground where you're short. He'll pull things out of you you didn't know you were there. Believe me, I used to be the person that was the last person to speak up in front of people. But God pulled some things out that I didn't even know was there and he'll do the same for you. So I guess what I'm asking this morning is simply this, is who would be willing? Who would be brave enough to walk past the lies to say, you know what? I see there's nothing I have to do by works to accept his gift he has for me. And then to bypass the second lie and say, you know what? He didn't save me just to sit. 
and then bypass the third lie. Then when he does speak of something that he wants you to do, that you won't buy into the lie that says, I'm not good enough. And you'll step in and let him do what he wants to do. That you'll pray that prayer, Lord, show me what you want me to do. Some of you know this story, but there's several that don't. My whole start down this ministry path was a senior pastor that I respected walking up to me at 20 years of age with a junior boy Sunday school book in his hand. Fifth and sixth grade boys, the class that nobody wanted. Say, I need somebody that can step in and get the attention of of these boys and hands me the book. Don't think I had never done anything like that in my life. I was just trying to stay saved. But I, I took that book and said, yes. I mean, I, there wasn't any angels singing. I didn't see a glowy halo around his head. There wasn't anything special, but I trusted this man that had poured in my life enough that if God spoke to him, I was like, it's good enough for me to give it a try. And I stepped in, and the class grew, and, and all of a sudden, as a matter of fact, I knew, I knew that, that it was going to work out. We had this one boy. His name was Sean. I'll never forget Sean. He was the cool kid. He was the one that all of them looked up to. He was also the biggest ringleader of all the trouble in the class. But I knew we'd cross the line when one Sunday morning I was talking, and the kids were cutting up, and Sean said, knock it off, guys, he's talking. Yes. But you see, that started a whole journey in my life that led to today, all because I took a Sunday school book. So what's that thing that God wants to do in your life that will lead to fulfillment that you didn't even know? Don't stop it in its tracks by saying, oh, no, no, you've got the wrong person. Amen. So who's willing to pray? Who will say, you know what? I will ask God to show me what he has for me. Raise your hand. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we ask you, Lord Jesus, you see the hands. Lord, there's fulfillment that you have for each of us. Lord, we want to see a move of God. Lord, I believe that this is the year of encounter, but Lord, it's going to take effort. It's going to take people finding their places. It's going to take us being obedient and and moving past the lies of the enemy that people fall for again and again and again. And Lord, I ask you to help us to find those places. Lord, I pray for those that raise their hands. Lord God, that you will speak to them, that you'll either send a leader their way or that you'll speak to them in some way, something that you want them to do. And Lord God, that we'll begin to be obedient to you. And Lord, that even in those moments when it's not convenient, Lord, that we'll be obedient and serve you. And Lord, that we'll advance this kingdom because Lord, we are the only hope that this world has. And we were created for a purpose. And Lord, there are works and there are things for us to do. And so Lord, I pray that you would speak to each person, that you would do work down deep in their hearts, Lord, and you'll bring us to fulfillment of what you have for us. And we thank you for it. Lord, we give you praise, believing that you're going to do this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.